As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Hello and welcome to Killer Queens, a true crime podcast. I'm your host, Torella. And I'm your better, prettier, younger host, Tori. We're sisters who are obsessed with true crime and love gal palin with you about cases. You can expect the occasional curse word, lots of friends quotes, and all the 90s nostalgia. To get in on the conversation, check us out at killerqueenspodcast.com. You can also find us on Instagram and Facebook at Killer Queens Podcast. And we're on YouTube at Killer Queens, a true crime podcast. Okay, y'all, grab your Capri Suns or your Surge, and let's talk about some true crime. Ever wonder what terrible thing happened on this day in true crime history? My name is Karina B. Mesterfer, writer and host of Morning Cup of Murder, your daily true crime podcast that dives into what murder took place on today's date in history. With over 500 episodes about serial killers, murderers, cults, and cold cases, there is always something new for you to enjoy. Morning Cup of Murder is the perfect addition to your morning routine. So if you like your coffee hot but your bones chilled, start your day with a morning cup of murder. Subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and everywhere else you listen, and come say hi on social media at Morning Cup of Murder. Oh, and remember, stay safe. Welcome back to Killer Queens. Hey, y'all. Hey. Hey, hey, hey. We have got a doozy and half today. <laughs> and I guess next week or right after this, depending on if you're a Patreon or not. You're not a Patreon, you're a patron. My bad. I knew it felt wrong coming out, but, <laughs> but it came out anyway. Yeah, I could tell it was really messy on the way out. So it was, yeah. But anyway, it's a, this is a crazy case. So we have a lots of trigger warnings for you. Here they go. Brief mention of cannibalism, dismemberment, homophobia, mentions of pedophilia, animal cruelty, and torture. Basically all of the worst things. Yeah, like almost anything you could think of is in this case. So, and some things that you've never thought of, hopefully. Oh God, yes, 100%. We would totally understand if you're just like, you know what, Not guys, I'm just going to bow out. Yeah, yeah. I'm going to skip it. Like, we would totally get it. Yes. I actually wish that I could, but here we are. I know. Yeah. So this was requested by Kelly Hood, Megzi Taylor, and Ruby Haddon. Hey, girl. Thanks to all of you. Yes. And thank you to the contributing writers, Sloan. Thanks, girl. And Skyla. 
You guys did amazing. We love you so much. Thank you, thank you, thank you. All right. So of course, before we get to the show, you know we're going to tell you about our Patreon because it's just what we do. Okay. (laughs) This is our show and you can't tell us what to do. (laughs) Exactly. So we've got, of course, Patreon. And if you want extra episodes, you can head over there. We also do ad-free episodes. So at any level, if you want to listen to all of the episodes ad-free, you just are, you can even join our lowest tier and you get every single episode ad-free. And our two-parters, you get part two immediately. You don't have to wait the week for it. So this one is going to be a two-parter. So if you're a patron, you'll get part two ASAP. Like as soon as you're done, you can just roll right on into it. Otherwise, you'll get it next week. No biggie either way. And they just introduced annual memberships on there. So you can actually join and get, I think it's like, I don't know the percentage off. You get at least one month free. That's as much as I can remember. It's at least one month free. It might be more. I can't remember. But you get a discount if you do the annual membership. So that's kind of cool. That's really cool. Well, let's roll that beautiful bean footage. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) I love it. So we're actually going to start with the final victim. And it sucks to have to say that, but there are several. So here we go. According to the City of Evil episode on the Snowtown murders, Adelaide is considered the murder capital of Australia. But author Sean Fuster says it's more like the bizarre crime capital. Hmm. Interesting. I know. Many insane murders occurred there with one of the more disturbing ones being about the 64 animals in the zoo that were found dead of stabbings, broken necks, and beatings. What the actual fuck? What the actual fucking fuck? Oh. I know, I'm pissed about it. Well, you should be. You may be asking yourself, Steve, why is Torella talking about Adelaide when this case is called the Snowtown Murders? And I'm assuming that you just call yourself Steve. I don't know. Right. But that's what Eric in Boy Meets World calls himself, so I thought that's what you called yourself too. (laughs) Well, that's because while Adelaide was the true epicenter of today's case, Snowtown, which is about an hour and a half north of Adelaide, was unfortunate enough to have an empty bank. On May 9th, 1999, in Snowtown, Australia, a man named David Johnson had been going to see about a computer that his stepbrother, Jamie Vlasakis, told him was for sale. Blasakis was supposed to be taking them to Clare, Australia for this computer, but instead he drove Johnson to Snowtown to an abandoned bank. This is not the point of this, but Vlasakis might be my most favorite last name to say out loud. Really? I really enjoy it. Oh, wow. It is interesting. I'm a sucker for a Greek name, I guess. Oh, yeah, I could see that. Put some Windex on it. <laughs> Trusting his stepbrother, as one does, Johnson followed him into the building. Unfortunately, when he entered, he was attacked. A man put his arm around Johnson's neck and cut off his airway. Once the man had handcuffs on Johnson, his captors provided him with a script and recorded him as he read the words. They would later use the recording to convince Johnson's family that he was alive and just didn't want to talk to them anymore. Johnson was also forced to give up his banking information. How in the H-E double hockey sticks can someone in this position read a script calmly? 
That's what I don't understand because this is not the only person that they force to record stuff. And the recordings actually do work. Like people do believe them and they're like, well, I mean, he said he wasn't coming back. So I guess he left on his own, even though I don't think he would, you know, all this stuff. But that's what I was wondering too, because I'm like, if you're being attacked, you're being tortured, whatever, those recordings have to sound like they're under duress, right? Like it's not going to just sound like, hey, I'm just not coming back. Like, right. I mean, I would think that you would have some like, emotion and passion behind that. Right. Yeah. So it's really, I mean, and thank God I've never heard any of them. Mm -hmm. And I will never hear any of them. Yeah. But it is strange because it just does seem like, yeah, if you're in that kind of a situation, you're not going to be able to hold it together like, like a normal conversation. Right. Two of the men left this bank to head to an active bank to try and get into Johnson's account, but they were unable to access the money for some reason. Furious, they headed back to their bank to have words with Johnson, but the friends they'd left behind with Johnson had been busy as well. When the would-be identity thieves returned, Johnson was dead. Now they were out whatever money they would have gotten, and they had missed out on the fun of the kill, and now they had to dispose of another body. These poor guys. I know, they have a lot on their plates. I know, and just like, they're missing out on everything, like FOMO. Rough way to start the day. I know. Johnson's body was dismembered, and for added sickness, the quartet of psychos fried and ate parts of his body. What the fuck? Why, why, why would you want to do that? (sighs) David Johnson would become the final victim of Mark Ray Hayden, James, Jamie, Byrodon? Oh, I didn't say it right. Vlasakis. Even better. Yeah, that is better, actually. Robert Joe Wagner and the ringleader, John Justin Bunting. David would also be the only victim to be murdered actually in Snowtown. So all the rest of them are murdered in Adelaide. There were many before him and the murderers had become very skilled at this stuff. Now let's learn a little bit about John Bunting. I'd rather not. Thank you. I know. Yeah. Who cares? Moving on. Okay. Yes. When learning about these murders, we have to, much like Maria Von Trapp, start at the very beginning. Oh, that's precious. (laughs) In this case, the beginning starts with John Justin Bunting. John Bunting was born on September 4th, 1966 in Inala, Queensland, Australia. And some sources say without a sense of smell, oddly enough. And that can really affect you. Sure. Yeah. Obviously, it turns you into a psycho. Clearly. I don't trust anybody that doesn't have a sense of smell. And I also don't trust you. Oh, what did I do? You didn't do anything, but I don't trust that you won't do anything. I smell a lot of stuff. I smell stuff other people don't smell. (laughs) It's not the smell, Torella. It's the fact that I just found out what stepbrothers can do. And since you're my real brother, I don't want to deal with it. That's true. Yeah, I've been, of course, I have been planning your funeral for quite some time, so (laughs) I can understand why you wouldn't. You've already queued up the soundtrack for my funeral, so. Yeah, I've also catered it. Had it catered now, so. Great. I'm really making some progress. It's going well. Wow, well, I'm glad for that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Swimsuit? Check. Sunscreen? Check. Phone charger? Check. Don't forget to pack the 5-Hour Energy. It fits great in a pocket or carry-on, and the alert feeling will help you arrive ready for anything. Now get 20% off when you use code 5HETRAVEL at 5HourEnergy.com. Expires April 30th. One-time use only. Not valid with other discounts. Remember, visit 5HourEnergy.com and use code 5HETRAVEL to save 20%. His parents, Tom and Jan Bunting, didn't have any other children and by all accounts were just a plain old family. His parents were described as good, honest people who loved their son. This is about all the information known about Bunting's early life and family. However, at just eight years old, Bunting claims he was attacked by his friend's older brother. Bunting said his, this brother beat him and sexually assaulted him. This would be the event that began Bunting's aversion to all things, quote-unquote, homosexual and pedophilia. So John Bunting's favorite thing to do is to put those two together like they're mutually exclusive. Yeah. And I guess maybe we should like, maybe we should like gather around everybody. We're going to have a lesson. Okay. Okay. Here it is. Pedophiles are not the same as gay people. Right. Like, gay people are fantastic. Yes, two of my most favorite people are in fact gay. Yes, they're wonderful. They're funny. They have great senses of style. Mm -hmm. There are many, many reasons, like anyone else, to love them. But for whatever reason, John Bunting puts them together saying that if you're gay, you're a pedophile. Which is asinine. Like, it blows my mind that there are actually people that feel this way. And he's not the only person that feels this way. I hope to God it's a very, very small percentage of people. But I know that there are people that feel that way. And it absolutely blows my mind. Mm-hmm. Like, it, it's just insane to me. It, yeah, I, don't, I do not understand it. Yeah, but, you know, just in case anybody was wondering, they're not the same. Yeah. As a teenager, Bunting developed an interest in neo-Nazis and white supremacy, and he reportedly became a neo-Nazi. He also read Hitler's autobiography, Mein Kampf. Why do so many teen boys read Mein Kampf? Like, I don't understand. Like, I don't, if I've ever find that in either of my kids' rooms, like, I don't know what I'm going to do, but there's going to be repercussions. Like, I don't see any reason to read it other than 
to be like, oh yeah, that's the the exact opposite of what one should feel and do. Like, yeah, I mean, I'm not Reddit, so I guess I can't really say, but I'm seeing a pattern here because Columbine kids. Uh huh. That's what I was thinking. Yeah. I don't know. There's a pattern. Yeah, definitely a pattern. Like any good cult leader or serial killer, Bunting had been described as a good listener, kind, compassionate, and empowering. And he was said to have a knack for talking to people and befriending them and making them feel connected. But he was also called a master manipulator. Well, they go hand in hand. I know, like literally if there was a pamphlet on serial killer or cult leader, this would be all the boxes and he ticked every single one off. Mm Mm-hmm. Bunting always showed intense interest in weapons and anatomy, but was also a classy guy who liked photography. However, instead of going the typical routes of maybe being a doctor or joining the army or becoming a photographer, his interest in anatomy and weapons took on a darker hue. As a child, Bunting enjoyed dropping insects into different types of chemicals. Then he moved on to animals. As an adult, Bunting got a job at a meat factory and at some point a crematorium where he took great joy in the slaughtering of the animals. This reminds me of, wasn't it, was it Catherine Knight? Oh, yes. That worked in the, like she did the meat, the animal slaughtering yes, thing in the meat did. factory. Yes, she did. And she liked it a lot Australian too. Australian too. Oh my God. And she, didn't she have like the knives above her bed and stuff? Yeah. Oh my God. Mm-hmm. I, I, I am grateful that there are people in the world because I am a meat eater. I enjoy a good piece of fried chicken. Sure. I cannot kill an animal to eat it. I'm just that kind of weenie. Yeah. Grateful that there are people out there who can do it. Yeah. But there's a difference between can and loving. Right. There's a difference between this is my job and I take intense joy in the... I get... Pain or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Because this is a person who is not doing things like in the most efficient way, probably. You know, if he goes on to torture people the way that he does, he probably tortured some of these animals. It's so sad. And again, that goes hand in hand. Mm hmm. He talked all the time, too, to other people about how much he loved it. Like he was just like, I'm living my best life. I get to brutally murder animals every single day. Isn't that so cool? And the added bonus is I get paid for it. Right. Yeah. He's like, most people just have to like go to a job, but I get to get paid for doing what I love. Ugh, gross. Yeah. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. 
Only 4% of universities in the U.S. are R1 research institutions, and Temple University is one of them. This means 100% of students have the opportunity to participate in hands-on learning and research with world-class faculty. With over 600 academic programs across 17 schools and colleges, Philadelphia's largest public university provides students with a rich variety of opportunities and propels graduates to succeed in their careers. Temple University. Schedule a campus tour today at admissions.temple.edu. visit At this time in 1988, Bunting was living with a friend and his friend's girlfriend, possibly stemming from how much he loved his job and his inability to leave work at work. Bunting killed his friend's dog for no real reason other than just to do it. I hate this guy. I know. And like, I don't understand how so many people were like, he is such a good friend. I love hanging out with him. Like, the man can only talk about pedophiles. That's literally the only thing he can talk about. Yeah, and killing animals. Like, he has no other vocabulary. Mm. So it's like, he can't be enjoyable to talk to. And then on top of that, it's like, hey, my best friend, my roommate killed my dog today, but, you know, I still love him. Like, what? I find no redeemable qualities. (laughs) I don't either. In 1989, he met Victoria Tripp, and he would marry her that same year. Bunting and Tripp moved to 203 Waterloo Corner Road and met friends that would become very important to their futures. I we'll get there in a minute. 100% can only think of ABBA when you say Waterloo. Is that like a song or something? You don't know that song. <laughs> no, Waterloo. I don't. Waterloo. It's really good. You would actually hate it, but it's really good. Yeah, I was like, that's a personal preference there. I don't like I ABBA. love I love ABBA. I love anything disco. Yeah, me not so much. I mean, I like Bee Gees. Bee Gees. You like Barry White? Yeah, 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 yeah. All right, let's move on. Not ABBA though. Okay. <laughs> While married to Tripp, Bunting began seeing Elizabeth Harvey on the side. And in 1994, he and Harvey moved in together. What? <laughs> yeah. Tripp was like, well, okay, that's fine. Yeah, I I also read that, okay, so one of the things that John Bunting does, and I guess from his point of view, this is going to sound fucked up, but from his point of view, this is helpful to him. He surrounds himself with a lot of people who have maybe some intellectual disabilities, some maybe mental disabilities, and his wife was one of them his first wife, I guess. Mm-hmm. And she was, I think, very young when they met. So I think she kind of just did whatever he wanted her to do. I think he, I think she was a pawn to him or, you know, kind of like easy prey. Mm-hmm. And she did whatever he wanted to do. And probably once Elizabeth Harvey came in the picture, she just didn't say anything about it. Just sad. Oh. But marriage. and I don't know that they ever got divorced. It just like she just sort of disappears from the story. I don't really know what happened to her. I hope to God she's still alive. I know. The sad thing is we can't know. Yeah, I would think that if she disappeared, we would hear about it, but you never know. Mm-hmm. Both of these women would go on to assist Bunting in at least one murder each. Elizabeth Harvey had a son named James. He went by Jamie Blasakis. He was born on December 24th, 1979. 
he also had a hard time in life. And this will be, you know, a theme across a lot of people in the story. There was a prosecutor that was interviewed for one of the documentaries, and he said that this area was a lower socioeconomic area. And the people here could often think of it as like unthinkable to have a real job. They have that kind of mentality where they can... A lot of people lived off of disability and some of them I'm sure needed it, but there are some of them that did not necessarily need that, but they didn't want to work. So they used the system. The socioeconomic status of this area is kind of reminiscent of what we're doing on Doc Jam's Winston-Salem. Yes. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And there's a lot that goes into that. Uh, We're not saying that people don't, you know, need help or anything like that. But there are some people in this story in particular that we see take advantage of that. And, you know, and that it's not cool. Mm -mm. Not cool, man. Not cool. Okay, so Jamie, he was sexually abused by his father when he was young and then his father died. An uncertain amount of time later, because we don't know the age that the abuse occurred, Bunting came into Jamie's mother's life and by extension, Jamie's life. And Jamie was 14 years old when he met John Bunting. Bunting became Jamie's father figure and Jamie watched everything that he did and listened to everything that he said. Oh, God. Bunting's hate speech wasn't filtered at all for young Jamie since he was going to have to teach this boy to be a young man anyway, right? Jamie wanted to impress Bunting and be the son he wanted. So if Bunting hated gay people and pedophiles, well, then Jamie hated him too, which is so sad mm-hmm. because literally there are kids who just do not have a chance, you know? Right. They are just a product of their environment. Yes, I feel like Jamie is a kid who didn't have a chance mm-hmm. because he just had this hate spewing out of John Bunting and into his mind at a very impressionable age. And it just goes from there. It sucks. Why? How did Bunting pull so much ass? I just don't get it. I don't get it either. And by all accounts, he was... He seemed very disrespectful to women too. Like they're like, well, that's it. we now we're back to that whole treat a hot girl like dirt and she'll stick to you like mud. Yeah, I know it's, ugh. but also these some of these women were dirt too. Oh yeah, definitely. One night while watching Australia's Most Wanted with Jamie and Elizabeth Harvey, a story came on about a missing person. Bunting proudly told Jamie, "That's my handiwork." What the hell? Like, that's a hell of a thing to brag about. I know, right? Seriously. Bunting hadn't let his obsession with death go just with killing his friend's dog. Back in August of 1992, Bunting was living on Waterloo Corner Road with Victoria Tripp. Here he met new friends, Barry Lane and Robert Wagner. The pair had been visiting a friend, and when Bunting and Tripp moved in to their house there, Lane and Wagner were neighborly and helped them move in. Lane and Wagner lived together and had been in a relationship since 1985 when Wagner was 13. What's really interesting about this 
is that his best friends were in fact pedophiles. Uh-huh. Or uh-huh. one of them. Mm-hmm. And that's fine. And they were gay. And that's fine. Uh-huh. Which is fine. No, it is. Pedophilia, no. Right. Being gay, go for it. Right. Love it. But yeah, these are not consenting adults. I mean, I guess Wagner becomes an adult, but not when it started. But he's, yeah, he's okay with all this. But Bunting is not an equal opportunity. No, he's not. Murderer. Yeah. But I don't understand it because it seems like he has this intense hatred for... Exactly his best friends. Yeah, but for all, like, it's like all encompassing for him. But at the same time, it's just like, he's decided these people are fine. I don't get it. It does not make any sense. Maybe it's because all of them had a shared love of murder and torture. I guess, Maybe that trumps. Maybe, yeah. Robert Wagner was not open with his sexuality, but Barry Lane was. Lane was known to dress in women's clothing and go by the name Vanessa at times, but there was little information about if he lived as a woman or how he identified. So Robert Wagner became Bunting's like henchman. He's his right-hand man. They do everything together. Robert Wagner is kind of like the, he does all the dirty work for John Bunting. Anything John doesn't want to handle, he gives it to Robert. Very toxic, manipulative yes. relationship. Yeah. And Robert Wagner, like at this time, looked scary as fuck to me. I mean, he just looked like scary. Mm-hmm. Just the woof. Like, if you saw him, would you be like, ooh, scary? I would be like, oh my God, so scary. Okay. Yeah. But I certainly wouldn't mess with him. He looks like he'd kick your ass. <laughs> and I don't want him to kick my ass. <laughs> Barry Lane was Bunting's link to the world of people that Bunting wanted to get rid of. So maybe that's it. Maybe he was just like, he that'll open the door for me. An in. That's fucked up. Jeez. It's also really fucked up. The whole thing is fucked up. But it's fucked up that Barry would be like, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll get him for you. Yeah. Yeah. Cause so okay, Gielan Ma- Maxwell, I'm just her Maxwell. <laughs> I don't. I, see, that's how little I care about her. I don't even care to get her Gilan name right. Maxwell. <laughs> that makes me feel like Moira from Schitt's Creek. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Maxwell. <laughs> exactly how she would say it. You do have a lot of wigs. I do, and they all are named. Hmm? Rebecca does not like Maureen. <laughs> As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Some places take you away. Some bring you together. Marathon 
does both. Marathon is Florida's family key with something for everyone. You'll find museums and wildlife refuges, wide open beaches, miles of warm, clear water, and the historic Seven Mile Bridge. For more about Marathon and the latest safety protocols, visit flakeys.com slash marathon. Barry Lane was a gay man, but he was also a convicted pedophile. So, you know, again, the it's exception, like the, not the rule. It's 100% in bold letters, everything that Bunting hates. And probably confirms for him in his stupid mind, okay, all gay men are pedophiles. Like, no, they're not. No. And again, being gay, totally fine. Being a pedophile, fuck you. Yeah, not okay. Bunting had plans that appeared to resemble that of Charlie in the case of Pepe Silvia. Who was Pepe Silvia? Yeah. <laughs> I love it. It's like smoking cigarettes. And- <laughs> he had what he called a rock spider wall. I hate that. Yeah, so apparently rock spider is like slang for pedophile in Australia. Why? I do not know. Interesting. This was a wall covered in papers and string and a web full of names. These were the names of people that Bunting suspected were gay or pedophiles, or I guess both. Again, this guy is like, he has appointed himself this quote-unquote vigilante Mm -hmm. to rid the world of all of these people. Who's he trying to be, Dexter? And also, nobody asked you to do this, man. Mm-mm. Plus, you don't even know what you're doing. You don't, you're just taking some innocent people. Lots of innocent people. Yes. Yeah. It's horrific. He seemed to think that, like, he could look at a person and tell if they were gay or tell if they were a pedophile. Like, wow. No. No, you can't. That's not a talent anybody has. No. And it's also not a talent. No. Occasionally, he would pick a name and prank call them. Bunting would accuse them of whatever he believed they were up to and tell them that they would get what's coming to them. He and his friends, along with young Jamie Vlasakis, often vandalized the homes of these people, spray-painting derogatory things on and inside their homes. His first real target was 22-year-old Clinton Tresize. Bunting was convinced that Clinton was a pedophile despite having absolutely no evidence of this. And Bunting wasn't going to let him get away with his fictitious misdeeds. Bunting invited Clinton, who he would refer to as happy pants after the murder. So he invites him over under the guise of a friendly visit. But instead, when Clinton was in Bunting's living room, he was beaten to death with a hammer or possibly a shovel. It's so awful. And like Clinton Tresize had just gotten his own place. He was so proud. You know, he's like living on his own. He's doing really well for himself. And he's like, thinks that he's met nice people in his neighborhood. And he goes over to their house and one of them is distracting him. And the other comes up behind him and hits him over the head. In a brutal attack. Yeah, absolutely brutal. And again, who the fuck is bunting and who does he think he is because he's just decided he's just made up his mind that somebody has done something so bad that they need to die for it mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah because he's the boss like we need to take a long hard look in the mirror girlfriend i know it's like you're murdering and torturing people he needs to take a note from that michael jackson song and he needs to look at the man in the mirror 100 mm, percent. yeah 
Bunting and Hayden were the main murderers in this instance. Bunting, Wagner, and Lane dug a shallow grave in the backyard and dumped Clinton's body into it, where it remained hidden for two more years. Clinton's disappearance would be the catalyst for the downfall of these murderers. And that's their first murder. And it's sad that their first murder is the one that is the catalyst for them to be caught, but they're still able to commit many, many more murders in the interim. Over years. Years, yes. Former head of major crimes at South Australia Police, Paul Schramm, decided that under his tutelage in the late 90s, when detectives have downtime, they are to check back into cold cases. I love the term tutelage. I know. I've never used it in a sentence before, so I'm glad that Sloan threw it in there. I do too. Makes me sound smart. I mean, I am too. What did you say? I said I do too. I'm not smart. (laughs) One that they encountered fairly early on was Clinton Tresize. Clinton was reported missing on October 26th, 1995. Oh my God, today is October 26th. That is eerie. Oh my God. But I wish it was 1995. Well, yeah. At first, the case seemed to still be cold because Clinton was kind of a loner and didn't have a lot of friends. They had done nationwide searches for him or any information, and they found nothing. Then the detectives found out that he did have at least one friend, 42-year-old Barry Lane, who he had lived with in the early 90s. There had been rumors that Lane and Clinton had been in a romantic or, at the very least, sexual relationship. Jeremy Pudney, the author of Snowtown, The Bodies in the Barrels Murders, said in the Crimes That Shook Australia documentary that Barry Lane was a bizarre, warped guy who had no redeeming features. Well, well, call a spade a spade. It sucks to suck. Yep. It was too bad that the detectives wouldn't be able to talk to Barry Lane, though, on account of him also being reported missing in October of 1997. Barry Lane and Clinton Tresize both received disability payments, and strangely, both were having that money withdrawn from their accounts on the reg from a very specific ATM. So the police in Adelaide decide they're going to put surveillance on that location. Okay, but did the police ever think that maybe a ghost did it? Obviously not, because everybody knows that a surveillance camera cannot capture a ghost. Especially one that's doing spooky transactions. Exactly. You, you're going to have to bring in, uh, what's his name? Nick Roll? Yeah. For ghost bouncing. Yeah, you're going to have to bring in the ghost bouncers. Totally. Well, I 500 guess was, spooky dollars. I was going to say, he's withdrawing 500 spooky dollars. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So they put surveillance on the location, and they did not see a ghost, but they did see Robert Wagner on the camera withdrawing money from Clinton's account. And two weeks later, he showed back up to do the same thing again. After this withdrawal, the police followed Wagner. Turns out, he goes right to Bunting's house. This discovery would lead the detectives to look into more missing persons cases to determine if there were reportedly missing people that were also drawing some sort of financial aid, pension, disability, welfare, etc., and connections to Wagner and or Bunting. That's when they found the case of 47-year-old Suzanne Allen from Murray Bridge. Suzanne disappeared about two years before the detectives opened up Clinton's file again. Suzanne's bank account with her social security payments was also still being used. 
Surely she can't be as easy to link to Bunting and Wagner as Clinton was, right? I'm guessing that I'm wrong about that. Yeah, she is. She's totally easy to to link. (laughs) Now there were three missing people who could all easily be connected to Bunting and Wagner. We didn't say Suzanne had actually previously been in a relationship with John Bunting. Yeah, I thought you guys already knew that, okay? (laughs) That was implied, obviously. Yeah. Sorry, I skipped a sentence. Um, she was in a relationship with John Bunting, as you well know. <laughs> okay. Common but, knowledge. Exactly. So, but that makes three people that are super easily connected. And in that way, this case reminds me of Charles Ng and Leonard Lake. Because it's like, why, why, why? If you're <laughs> going to be a good serial killer, I don't think that anybody should be Mm-mm. a good serial killer. Mm-mm. But if you're going to be a good serial killer, you pick random people. Israel Keys, take a note. Mm-hmm. But you don't pick people that you know. No, that is you dumb bitch level. Exactly. Yeah, because it's like, if you're watching a documentary and they're like, everybody around this guy started going missing, you're like, you dumb bitch. Like, of course they're going to figure out it's you. It, it took them a really long time. I don't like that. I don't either. I mean, it took them a lot longer than you'd think it would if like everybody who is related to them in any sort of way or like connected to them goes missing. And also their financial benefits are still being withdrawn and t- yeah, taken yeah, advantage of. Yeah, but there's nothing else. You know, these people are not using credit cards anywhere. They're not using their phones anymore. They're not getting jobs anywhere. They're not leaving the country. You know, they're not doing anything that you can trace. Right. They're just withdrawing stuff from the ATM, but they have them at the ATM doing it. Well, and they have, so their friends and family have had these recordings, right? That are like, hey, look, I'm I'm out. I'm not doing this anymore. I'm moving. Mm-hmm. But then where the money is being withdrawn is from the same place. Still the same place. Yeah. yeah. I mean, come on. Yeah. Suzanne had a tenant of sorts who'd been living in a camper or as the Aussies call it, a caravan in her backyard. This man, 26-year-old Ray Davies, didn't have an official missing persons report, but he was also very definitely missing. Since he and Suzanne were both missing and were both easily connected to Bunting and Wagner, he was added to the list of connections. The detectives continued looking at missing persons reports for more possible connections. They found another one in 37-year-old Elizabeth Hayden. Elizabeth was reported missing by her brother on November 25th, 1998. Oh my God, today's November 25th. Oh my God. Oddly, she hadn't been reported missing by her husband, Mark Hayden. And Mark is one of John Bunting's henchmen, I guess. Elizabeth was also reportedly intellectually disabled and had led a hard life. And the same was true for Mark. She and Mark were friends with Bunting and Wagner, but Bunting didn't really like Elizabeth and she grated on his nerves. And that's the worst thing you can do apparently is just annoy him. Exactly. Mark, however, fell hook, line, and sinker for everything Bunting had to offer. The detectives brought Mark Hayden in to determine what he knew about his wife's disappearance. Hayden was said to have been cooperative-ish. The detective said that, yeah, he answered questions, but he didn't really give them any information that would help them find his wife. He told them that their marriage was over and Elizabeth had just left. In looking into Elizabeth's disappearance, the detectives found that around the same time she disappeared, so did her four-wheel drive Land Cruiser. While this could appear that she got in her car and left, the detectives didn't think that's what happened. 
Then a neighbor told the detectives that they had seen Bunting and Wagner loading bags into a cruiser around the same time both it and Elizabeth disappeared. Well, but did the bags, were they labeled dead bodies? Mm. I mean, if they weren't, then it definitely, that's not what it was. No. Yeah. Because everybody knows you must label things accurately. I think that's a law. Oh, yeah, for mm-hmm. sure. And they are very law-abiding citizens, for sure. Mm-hmm. Now that the police have been able to connect Clinton Tresize, Barry Lane, Suzanne Allen, Ray Davies, and Elizabeth Hayden to Robert Wagner, Mark Hayden, and John Bunting, the cases were changed from missing persons to major crimes, and they now had more resources, plus enough evidence and probable cause to- Plus ta- the elbow grease. <laughs> yeah. To tap the phones of all three men. This would be the step that led the detectives to Snowtown, a small town about an hour and a half north of Adelaide. Until this point, detectives didn't even have Snowtown on their radar in regards to these cases. Detectives head out to a house in Snowtown where they have traced phone calls to and from the three suspects. Once there, they find Elizabeth's land cruiser in the yard. What fucking idiots. I know. It's like, get a burner phone, you stupid idiots. I know. They might as well have had signs in their yard. They're like, don't, don't dig here. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I did not bury a body there. They talk to the owner of the house and he tells them that the car had been left there by Bunting and when it was left, it had six huge black plastic barrels in it. But the man said the barrels had been moved to the bank across the street and that bank had been abandoned but had recently been rented out. Financial records would show that it was rented by none other than John Bunting and his associate Mark Hayden. Just renting a bank. Nothing to see here. Like, they're not opening a bank. Yeah, they're not running a bank. a bank. Yeah, they're just, just hanging out there. Yeah. On May 20th, 1999, police made their way into the bank. When they get to the area of the vault, things become even more apparent that they were about to come upon something very wrong and probably really nasty. Paul Schramm told a documentary that his guys didn't even open the doors before they told him, boss, we've got bodies. He said the smell in the bank had been, quote unquote, the smell of death. But the vault seemed to be the hub of the smell. When detectives opened the vault door, there was black plastic taped up around the door with a sealed opening down the middle. When detectives opened the plastic, they first stuck in a camera. That showed them six huge black plastic barrels, rubber gloves, and bottles of acid. That is ominous. It is, and I cannot even imagine... I just think about Silence of the Lambs when they have to go and like view this body at the morgue or whatever. And they have to put the stuff under their nose because it smells so bad. And then to think about that plus six barrels of it. Yeah. Oh my God. Once inside, the detectives contact the forensic pathologist. They know they have bodies and they want to make sure they're doing everything they can to preserve the crime scene. But they need to see inside the barrels to confirm their thoughts. The forensic pathologist told them to open the barrels. So they do. And the first thing they see is a mummified foot along with clothing and what appears to be a hunched up figure. All six barrels turned out to be packed full of body parts. Not bodies, parts. The detectives and people can tell that there are a bunch of parts, but they can't see a single whole person. 
They need to know how many bodies they're dealing with and who the body parts belong to. At this point, all three men are arrested but refuse to speak, of course. At the bank, the barrels are taken out of the vault and transported to the mortuary where the acid was drained and the body parts were carefully removed. The forensic pathologist explained in the Crimes That Shook Australia documentary that it takes a lot of acid to dissolve a body fully and really, the body is made up of a lot of water. He has said that the water neutralizes the acid, which is why you would need a lot of acid to kind of like outdo the amount of water. Plus, he mentioned the barrels were sealed, so they had pretty good evidence and were able to put together their very macabre jigsaw puzzle. I know I hate to be this way, but that's what I thought of. Like, that's a really tough puzzle to... Yeah. And they they actually, like, the forensic pathologist, like, kind of called it that because he was like, yeah, we have to put it all together. Because I don't, I don't know that, like, I don't know that they put, you know, it's not like they put one person's dismembered body parts in each barrel like right they just yeah. all were packed in kind of just thrown in well, there there's more than six bodies but they're only six barrels right yeah because the body parts were basically preserved the medical examiners were able to identify tattoos and even fingerprints see again what fucking dummies i know yeah they used the wrong acid everybody knows it's like knowing Bunting's relationship with Elizabeth or whatever her name is. Yeah. Yeah. They were also able to see marks on the bodies that indicated what happened to them. The medical examiner found rope marks on three of the bodies. There were gags, handcuffs, and obvious burns. One body had burns across the chest and another had burns on his scrotum and still another had burns on the feet. They determined there were eight bodies in the six barrels. According to the website Ranker, Bunting would occasionally check on the barrels and say they're rotting very nicely and that he enjoyed very much watching the bodies fall apart. So, again, wrong. They were not rotting very nicely. No, they, they were, were preserving. being mummified. Yeah. Yes. But also, what a sick fuck. Like, oh my God. I hate him. The case exploded in the media. There was nothing like it in the history of Australia, and it was very shocking in the scale and cruelty. Pleas for information were put out to the public, and a Crime Stoppers tip line was established. Just days after the men were arrested, the tip line got a tip. The police should head out to 203 Waterloo Corner Road, and they would find bodies. This could be a drinking game. Every time you say 203 Waterloo Corner Road, (laughs) you have to take a shot. God, being hammered. Yes. So they go there. Shram said that about one meter down, they found 11 black trash bags. These would turn out to be filled with the body parts of Suzanne Allen. 11 trash bags? That's kind of a lot, unless it's like not your regular five gallon or 10 gallons of uh, hefty bag or something. Yeah. Jeez. Then he said about three meters down in a filled in bunker were the skeletal remains of Ray Davies. Records showed that the last person to rent the house was John Bunting. The three men weren't talking. The police had all the evidence they needed to charge the men and take them to trial, but they didn't know why they had done this. Why had they tortured these people, killed them, dismembered them, buried them, and stuffed them into barrels and covered them with acid? And if you want to know why, stay tuned for part two. Ooh, Cliff 
Hanger. That was a bitch move, wasn't it, guys? Sure was, yeah. Yeah. That's us. We're bitches. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, otherwise, this episode would be 90 hours long. So we're going to cut it here. Ain't nobody got time for that. No. But if you join the Patreon, you can have it right now. You can have it right now. Just easy breezy start listening to it. And ad-free at that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But if you uh, are not in a place where you are able to support the show financially, no probs. We will catch you next week for part two. Bye. Bye. All right. Before we wrap up today's episode, as always, we have got some shout outs for some new patrons. So we've got some Hey Girl Thanks to do. Thank you to Kimber T, Hannah D, Crystal L, Kayla C, Emily W, Samantha F, Nikki M, Kate Q, Lil Kitten, that's cute. (laughs) That is cute. Lacey L, and I think Crystal is Crystal I. Oh, I just thought it was lowercase. Okay, you're probably right. Tracy H, Savannah B, Danielle O, Alicia P, Greta B, Autumn B, Tammy J, Alyssa L, Darla W, Melissa W, Emily S, Jen L, and Andrea Z. Thank you guys so much. We love you. We'd love to hear your thoughts on this case. Connect with us on Instagram or Facebook to continue the conversation. Thanks for listening and we will meet you back here next week. Bye. The theme song for the show is created and composed by Stephen Toby. You can find more of Stephen's work on SoundCloud. Our logo was created by Sloane Williams of Sophisticated Crayon. You can find more of her work on Etsy. Visit us at KillerQueensPodcast.com for merch and other info about the show. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com podcast. That's Indeed.com podcast. Terms and conditions apply.